Well, good morning again, friends. That's strong. I like that. I think I heard Nathaniel out there. Yeah, I heard that. Nathaniel, good morning. It's good. Let's see, where do I put this thing? Okay. Haha. I need a bigger pulpit. Just put a piece of plywood here. Smaller Bible. I usually use my, my tiny one. Oh, wow. So, yes, as Lindsay said, tough passage. You don't normally come across a passage that, that features uh, prostitution. But here we are. So we're walking through the book of Corinthians, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, um, right there just south of Greece, uh, in Greece, but on the um, Peloponnesus um, on the isthmus that connected the mainland to the Peloponnesus. And so uh, let's just dive right in. Um, I just want to use a metaphor to start in here. This text is like an iceberg. Uh, The iceberg, as we all know, 10% of it, the stuff you can see is on the surface, and then the large mass of it is is beneath. And, And the tip of this iceberg for Paul here, and really, if I can say, throughout the rest of his letter, the tip of this iceberg is sexual stuff. The the Corinthians have been, because of their supposed freedom in Christ, they've misunderstood that to mean we can kind of live how we want to. He's taking care of the law, and so we can can go sleep around, even with prostitutes, and he's he's clearing that up. So it assaults us. It's it's an obvious thing in the text. This, this, uh, why are you joining yourself to a prostitute? Here's what happens when that, and here's your reality. But underneath that tip of the iceberg Body matters. He talks about all sorts of body issues, sexual issues, and he goes on to talk about singleness and marriage, and then the body again in in chapter 10. Um, Underneath all that is something much more massive, a reality that's much more massive that affects that tip, and that is union with Christ, which is why I've titled the sermon Body Matters and Union with Christ. Um, And if Paul didn't say what he says here, and elsewhere, um, I would be scared to speak about them as I'm doing for fear of committing heresy or even blasphemy. But what he says here about our union, the, the union of, of him or her who has looked to Christ as Savior and Lord is astounding. It's astounding. So I pray that we could be bowled over by the wonder of what he's saying and affected, helpfully, as we go out from here. Um, so the text, as I say, it seems to be about not sleeping around um, or even more profoundly about our caring about what we do with our bodies because our bodies matter to God. And indeed, all that's true. All that is true. It is about those things, but that, those, aren't, those things aren't its core. If I can use another metaphor to depart from the iceberg, um, those are rings on the target. But the bullseye is verses 15 and 17, especially verse 17, where Paul says, we who have looked to Jesus Christ have been united to him. Verse 20, he has taken up his residence in us. Therefore, what we do with our bodies, the Lord is doing. We bring God everywhere we go as new creations, as those who have been united. And he uses marriage language, and it's, it's astounding. And we'll get into that much more. John Owen, possibly the greatest English Puritan theologian, He calls union with Christ, the doctrine of our union, the union of the believer with Jesus Christ, quote, the greatest, most honorable, 
and glorious of all graces that we are made partakers of. Sinclair Ferguson, another theologian who's alive today in and between here in Scotland, uh, says of Owen, he says, Owen's great burden and emphasis is helping us to understand what it means to be a Christian, is to say, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the Heavenly Father gives you to Jesus and gives Jesus to you. You have him. Everything you can ever lack, everything. All the things that we go seeking in these other things, our idolatries, our sin patterns, everything you can ever lack is found in him. And all you will ever need is given to you in him. So this union with Christ that's the, the mass underneath the surface that Paul, where, where Paul's talking about sexual issues, it's everything. It's the, it's the diamond on the ring of, of Christian doctrine. It, that's it. Without it, we have nothing. To quote Rankin Wilborn from his excellent book, Union with Christ, it is, union with Christ, that is, what makes the gospel good news. It's the whole point. It's the whole reason that God sent his son and that Jesus went through all the excruciating rejection and keeping of the law with joy and crucifixion and death and hell for us. It's to be, for us, to, for his people to be united to him. And it's here in this text. Now, um, the problem in Corinth is that, again, like I said just a second ago, the law has been fulfilled by Jesus, they're saying. So Paul, in this, in this text, he quotes the Corinthians, and then he says, but here's the truth, actually, right? So they're saying, hey, look, um, verse 12, uh, all things are lawful for me, but then he interjects, yeah, but all things aren't helpful. We don't have the quotes in the Greek, so we kind of have to guess, is he quoting the Corinthians, and is he, how, when is he responding? But they're saying, look, all is lawful for me because Christ has fulfilled the law. But actually, we know that that's a misrepresentation of what Christ came to do. He's saying, look, yes, Christ has fulfilled everything. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to clean myself up. I can't do that. To be a new creation in Christ, to be acceptable to God, I look to Christ and I am clean. But that doesn't mean, therefore, that I can break the law with impunity and do whatever I want to. We are saved, um, we are saved so that, not so that we can live as we want, but so that we can live in, in God uh, in fellowship with him, delighting in him, wanting to please him because he is now our father, made such by Christ. And so um, they misunderstand the freedom that Christ has purchased for them as license to do whatever they want to. Um, I think that, talk just briefly, briefly before getting to the first point about uh, the church and then the world, how, how we as an American church and then how the world, our culture, not the church, um, sort of how we embrace this, how we identify with this. Very similar. We're, Houston's very similar to Corinth. Hypersexuality, I mean, just look, look anywhere. Look at the magazine aisles, you know, when you're, when you're in your shoot to, to check out at HEB or go to Richmond, go to Westheimer, all the sex shops, all the strip clubs, everything on TV. And even that aside, everything is so surfacey and about physique and about, um, we're even just hyper body eyes, not just hypersexualized, but hyper hyper-physicized. And so, um, but the church, I think, uh, sort of has, in, in Texas, let's say, we tend to have this theology where we say, Christ has saved me, and therefore I'm good to go as far as I'm gonna be with him someday, and so it doesn't matter how I live. But that's the exact, Paul's saying that's the exact opposite of the gospel. The gospel is, it, it matters very much how I live because Christ has saved me. He has saved me, what? For himself. And everything I do, 
I'm bringing him with me. God is for me and I am for him. God is in me and I am in him. And I am in, and I am in him. Um, but then our culture um, is obsessed with its freedom and its rights. And um, again, it's very similar to this Corinthian church where I'm free to do whatever I want to do. But actually what Paul says here at the end of verse 12, if you look with me, he says, look, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved, says Paul, as a Christian, as a new creation in Christ, by anything. In other words, and if I think that I can just do whatever I want to to engage in prostitution, lust of any kind, greed, over, you know, overconsumption of appetites, unhealthy appetites, pursuing this or that instead of satisfaction in the living God and things as God would have me appreciate them and, and enjoy them, um, it actually enslaves me. I can give footholds to Satan as a Christian that allows Satan and his servants and slaves to crawl all over me. Um, and so that's where we are um, at this sort of present. And there's so much. I pause briefly because there's just so much uh, here that I could pile on as far as materialism and Gnosticism. And I think I'm going to I think I'm gonna push that aside. Um, Let me just say briefly that before jumping into point one, God has freed us not to flaunt but to flee, that materialism is that the body is all there is, and that's in a large part where our culture is. The body is all there is, and what that leads to, it leads to either um, pursuing things of the body headlong, that's all there is, I'm gonna find my salvation in shape and form, or, um, despair, because if we're thinkers, we realize that actually if material's all there is, if the body's all there is, then everything's gonna end in a heat death, including me, including love, beauty, and then love and beauty and meaning are actually just figments, they're phantasms, because if all there is is material, those things don't exist. Um, but you actually can't meaning, meaningfully say meaning doesn't exist, because that's a meaningful statement, so you're self-conscious. So, so materialism doesn't work from a philosophical standpoint. We can't actually talk helpfully about it if it's true. We're just a bunch of atoms popping around that mean nothing at all. So materialism is self-defeating, and it doesn't work, and it either leads to an overemphasis on the body, which is where our culture is, or to despair if you're a thinker and you believe in materialism. And, and so any culture that's materialistic is gonna be swinging between those two poles. And isn't that where we are? Swinging between an overemphasis on the body and shape and power, shape is power and physique and appearance and we're so obsessed with healthcare, and healthcare is a good thing, don't get me wrong, but it's like, when you're a materialist, death is literally the worst thing that can happen to you. Worse than sin, worse than separation of God, because there is no God, so your body is it. So we worship at the Cathedral of Medicine, and that's where our country is in a lot of ways, or we swing to despair, and our culture is just kind of swinging between the two poles. Gnosticism, which is that the body is base, or less good than spirit, believes in body and spirit, but the body is sort of dirty, um, it, um, it kind of leads to the, so materialism kind of leads to the body's everything, therefore I'm gonna dive right in and do whatever I want. I'm gonna worship through sex or whatever. Um, or despair, the, uh, everything's gonna end up in a heat death anyway, so I might as well do what I want. Gnosticism saying the body doesn't really matter, you kind of treat it like a dirty rag. I can do what I want with it anyway because it doesn't really matter. So both, both debasing matter and making matter everything kind of end up in the same place. And that's sort of where Corinth is. And the church has kind of taken the gospel and sort of fallen into that in their own particular way. 
um, Christ has fulfilled the law for me, so therefore I can just kind of live however I want to with my body. My body doesn't matter too much because I'm going to heaven. An evacuationist, sort of escapist theology. That's not at all, Paul says, that's not the gospel. Okay, that's not the gospel. So, so that's, that's a bit on materialism, Gnosticism, where the church at Corinth is, all these sexual things, guys, just keep this, I've said a lot so far already. That's the tip. Those are rings, but the, the center is, is Christ, okay? So let's talk briefly, point one, about God has freed us not to flaunt, but to flee. Not to do whatever we want, but to fight and to flee and not to be enslaved or dominated by anything. Um, okay, all is lawful, but I will not be dominated or ESV enslaved by anything. So in Jesus, for the first time ever, as humans, we are able not to sin. In our dispositions, we are made friends of God. We are made at peace with God through the sacrifice of Christ and through his resurrection. And so he doesn't free us to live however we want to. He frees us to live as children in happy obedience to the Father, knowing that we have freedom to fall down, to sin, not to try to sin, but to sin because we, that's what we will do. We will sin until the day that we die and are glorified, but to know that's not our identity. And so we are, for the first time ever, passe non pecare in Latin. It's an old phrase. Augustine used it, among others. Able, passe, non pecare, able not to sin. Whereas the, the unbeliever is non passe, uh, non pecare, not able not to sin. Just in his disposition to God, he is an enemy of God and wants to be God himself and to take the reins and to have autonomy. That's our disposition outside of Christ. But that's been changed in Christ, completely changed. We are new creatures. It's not behavior. It's a whole new heart. It's a whole new disposition. And so we're aware as Christians still being able not to sin of the power of sin to corrode and to corrupt and to put footholds in us. Sin is like a, even with a Christian, it's like a bridle, a bit rather, sorry, that's put in our mouths and it directs us. It can begin to direct us as we feed on it. If we think, hey, I can just live however I want to and I'm free, Paul's saying, no, you're being fooled by Satan. You're being enslaved and you don't have to be. You're able not to sin. So flee. Don't, don't flaunt sin. Don't revel in it. Don't, don't roll around in it like a pig in the mud. Rather, like Joseph in the Old Testament, flee. You have the ability to now, is, is kind of the first thing he's saying here. So maybe for us, maybe it's, I don't have to do any application at all. Maybe it's, maybe it's been prostitution. I've, I've heard recently of that sort of thing happening, and there's plenty of opportunity here. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's porn. It's everywhere, especially hard for men who are so visual. Maybe it's lustful looks or just thoughts. You know, Martin Luther, I've shared this before, the great reformer, he said, so you see, you see a woman or a woman sees a man and you can't help that first glance, but and so we ask, like, wh- at what point am I lusting, right? Every, like, high school kid wants to know that. How far can I go, <laughs> you know? And I'll get to that at the end, but uh, it's the second, it's the second look. It's the gaze. And L- Luther used this great word picture. He said, we all know, that might be hard to discern when you start lusting, but we all know the difference between a bird flying over our heads and one making its nest in our hair. You know when the bird has, you've let it roost, in your head. Um, it's that second look, it's that gaze, it's that decision. And so we have the power to look away and to go to something. Here's the thing, not to just say no, but to go to a greater yes. Don't forget that. As I'm preaching on these first preliminary issues, don't forget the whole time what's beneath the surface. What, what is Paul getting at? Union with the God who made you, who is beauty. He made us for himself. He has taken us to himself with a wedding vow called the cross. And I'll get there and we'll finish with that, okay? Um, Christ's same 
came to set us free from these things, not for these things. We are free to flee and free to fight, okay? I want to read, before getting to Wed to Christ, point two. Got to read some C.S. Lewis. You know I do. It's a compulsion, a holy compulsion. Um, The Weight of Glory, opening paragraph. Not the whole thing. He says this. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, you don't think about, oftentimes, you don't think about the scriptures, God's very word, and Christianity as a promise of great reward, do you? A lot of times you think of like rules or a dry book. I hope you don't, but a lot of people do. He says, no, when we consider the staggering nature of rewards promised to us by our Lord in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires. Is he threatened by our desires? Does God hate desires? No, he made them. He made, he made sex. He made the body. That's where we're going to go, okay? That's where we're, gonna, we're heading in this lesson, Okay? He finds our desires not too strong, but what? Too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, Lewis says, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, trying to find our happiness in those, trying to satisfy the yawning abyss of craving, of soul craving through drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So Paul's not saying, don't go to prostitutes, that's bad, desire's bad, the body's bad. Not at all, not at all. He's saying you're being duped, man, you're being so duped. You're you're eating on a piece of stale candy when you've been offered this huge smorgasbord of desserts, okay? And the dessert is God himself. So wed to Christ, okay? Moving from God has freed us to flee, not to flaunt, and not to rebel in our sin. Um, to we are wed to Christ, this astounding thing. And let me just slip in. I had these things written in here at the bottom, so I missed them. But in closing and moving to wed to Christ, in the closing of the first point, moving to point two, wed to Christ, just in case this helps anybody, I wrote this in this morning. G.K. Chesterton, I've said it before. Some of you here won't have heard it. Every man, he was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, 20 years older. Every man, he says, who knocks on the door of a brothel looking for a prostitute. So it's a, it's a, it's a, Germain quote for this text, right? Every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. All of our desires, he made them to be satisfied in him alone. What did Augustine say? If I said one thing, I've said this. He starts his confessions, his wonderful book of confessions, and he was a sex addict. Augustine, one of the greatest, maybe the greatest church father, he was a sex addict. And, what it, and he was driven by desire because desire takes us, it finds his proper home in God. And that's what he finally found. But he was looking for it in all sorts of places. And he said, oh God, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless in the Latin, unquiet, until they rest in you. Restless. You will never rest until you rest in the living God. So wed to Christ. God loves us kind of sinking into the body. And what is Paul? What's the bottom of the iceberg here? What's the bullseye of this this target? God loves the body so much that he's the one who made it. He's, Satan is not, we, man, we give so much to Satan thinking he loves sex, he loves the body, all the sexual stuff, that's him. It's sort of, you know, as, as spouses, you know, as husband and wife, we can maybe have sex, but let's not ever talk about it. And it's, and yeah, we ought to be discreet and, and prudent about that sort of thing, not flaunt, not talk about it with whatever. But sex is God's. It's God's domain. We need to take it back as Christians. He made the body. He loves the body. Satan hates the body. Satan wants to destroy the body. He wants to destroy you. So he will use everything for the body and pervert it and try to suck you into it to worship it and to do all that stuff in the wrong sorts of ways so that he can destroy you by it. 
okay? God loves the body. He made it. He pronounced it good after he created it. He pronounced it very good. It is a core part of what it is to be human, to have a body. We are body and spirit, okay? Um, He loves it so much that in the fullness of time, what? He took a body. He still has a body with the nail prints in his hands. He will forever have a body. The second person of the Trinity, tri, tri, the second person of the Trinity, I'm having trouble speaking today. Um, right? The second person of the Trinity, God Almighty, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, will, he took a body, has a body. He will always be a man because it's only as a man that he can represent us, those of us who come to God through Christ by faith. He represents you before the Father. And if you have looked to him, you are indeed in him, the God-man. So he has a body, he took a body, that's how much he loves it and that's how much he has dignified it. And what is Paul saying here at the center of this text, 15 through 17? He, is, he says something amazing. He says that God in Christ, the center of his plan is that he is wooing men and women to himself to wed, to marry, okay? Because Paul is using marriage language taken from Genesis 2. Adam and Eve, when they got together, they got together and they became one flesh. And marriage is the closest picture that we have of what God has made his own people for, to become one, that intimate union that we're seeking in all of our idolatries, running after other things. God made marriage a picture of, which is, this is the astounding thing. He's saying, actually, God made marriage in large part to be a picture, a faint shadow of what he has made you for, and you for, and us for, to be brought into him to become one with him. The Eastern Orthodox have a word for this. It's called theosis, to be divinized. And that sounds heretical, doesn't it? Not to be God, but to be brought into oneness and intimate union with God. And the best picture we have is loving marriage. But it's just a faint shadow. That's what Paul says elsewhere in Ephesians 5, right? Um, so what we, what's, the cor- what's the corollary? What's the implication? If what we do with our body, here's the sort of bottom line, Paul's saying, therefore, that being the case, that amazing truth being the case, what we do with our body, Christ is doing. We are drawing Christ into. We are taking him wherever we go. We are the body of Christ corporately and he by his spirit is in you if you have looked to him by faith. It's almost unbelievable, but it's the core of our faith. So I praise God, it's not unbelievable but it is a mystery. It is an amazing mystery. And again, we have the husband and wife coming together as one flesh as a picture that again, Paul is saying, God actually made that to picture something greater, what he was gonna do in Christ with us. Um, And more remotely, uh, so what we do, we carry Christ into, we represent God. There's a sense in which we are little Christs in the world. Uh, We are his body, he is our head. So there's a, more remotely, an example might be my son, where he goes and what he does, he represents me in. He's an ins. I tell him that sometimes when he, before he leaves. If I'm leaving for the weekend, son, you're the man in the house. He's seven. What? He's the man in the house. He's the oldest, so he wears that mantle pretty well. And you are an ins. And you represent our family. And that's what we do with living out. We don't just represent him. We share his name because we have that fellowship with him through Christ. So um, all this boils down to union with Christ. Um, the prostitution thing, so important, but it's a tributary to the great Amazonian river of union with Christ. And our union with Christ is only 
possible because of the cross and the resurrection. That's what I want to sort of land on for a bit before moving to point three, okay? It's only possible because of the cross and the resurrection happened. Jesus' cross and his rising from the dead, burying all that kept us from God and rising to a new kind of life. Why are, why are you free from, I want to ask you this question. Why are you free from your sins if indeed you are in Christ? Because you paid the price for them. Okay, you're like, heresy meter, it's going off, it's going crazy. You suffered the penalty, eternal death and hell. You're like, what? No. You did in Christ. Christ for you, Christ represented you. God, who is just, saw you die to your sin. You paid the penalty through him. He did it. He did it for you. We can take no credit. You see what I'm saying? I'm using a bit of verbal license to say that's the doctrine of representation. The doctrine of the vicarious atonement of Jesus is that he paid the price for you in your place, and God sees you as having paid the satisfactory price in Christ, in Christ. Okay, faith identifies you with him in his death, his just payment for your sins, all your offenses against God, all your transgressions, as we'll say in a minute in the Lord's Prayer at Communion, all your transgressions, outward and inward before the living God, Christ took on and paid the full price for. And you are alive indeed. You are a new creation because he rose. You rose. As, as sure, that's your guarantee that you will, even though you die, you will be alive forever and you will get a new body. Sure, surely as he has one, because faith identifies you with him. It unites us. It unites you in a mysterious but real way. Mysterious doesn't mean unreal. It just means we can't comprehend it fully. But we can grasp enough to believe that this thing has happened and faith identifies you with him. Is it a mystery? Utterly, but it's true. This is why Paul, in this text on prostitution, and on body issues, um, and on union with Christ, he has resurrection right at the, at the middle of the section, verse 15. He, he touches on the resurrection of Jesus, and at the end of the section, crucifixion, uh, verse 20. A feature of these key places where um, Paul's talking about the church and sexual issues, okay? Because the church is now one, they are now one with, they are Christ's body, been united to him in a stronger way than even a man and a wife in marriage um, through faith, through faith. And so um, what does sleeping around have to do with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? They ask, they might ask, we might ask. Everything Paul says through his death and resurrection for you by faith, again, you have been united to him. Therefore, what you do, Christ does. Okay, we are Christ bearers, he is in us. So does this seem like an isolated doctrine, maybe partially heretical, weird? Um, is this something Paul just talks about here in this, in this letter? Well, no, not at all, it's all over. Like I said, it's the crown jewel. Let me give three brief examples of that. So one, a lexical, a word-based example from the New Testament. The word Christian is found how many times in the New Testament? Three. Close. Zero is close to three. Baptism, the word baptism, huge doctrine. It's found 19 times. Paul uses the phrase in Christ. Any guesses? 165 times, give or take. It's everything. Union with Christ is the sumum bonum of the Christian faith. Okay, um, let me, so that's a lexical argument, okay? It's just the thing that we were saved for, to know him, to be united to him in intimate love. 
Okay, that's it. So uh, let me give you a whole Bible sort of narrative, Genesis to Revelation, cover-to-cover argument for this. Um, Eden, Israel, us. That takes you the whole way. Okay, Eden, what did God make everything for? He built a place for us to be with him in communion, to be in obedient, loving fellowship with him as our father. We, Adam and Eve screwed that up. He started over, in a sense, with Israel. He put them in a garden land. He made them a people. He told them, just like Adam and Eve, to obey the law and to kick the enemy out, and they didn't, and they were kicked east, just like Adam and Eve, out of the garden, out of the garden land to Babylon. And then he comes, Jesus, the true Israel, okay, the second Adam, the second man, and he does what Adam and Eve didn't do and what Israel didn't do. And he, as the son of God, obeys God fully from the heart and is kicked out in our place out of the garden land and suffers the excruciating pain of being separated from his father and enduring the wrath of God, the just wrath of God for us. And in so doing, he invites us, anyone who will look to him and who will be identified with him by faith, into the garden, into relationship with him, into union with him. Um, It's all about, this whole life is about being with God in intimate fellowship. Okay, and everything we do therefore matters. So that's a whole Bible argument. Um, it's strewn throughout the whole scripture, okay? Adam, Israel, to us, his church, his people who come to him by the true Israel, by the second Adam, Jesus Christ. From any race, from any nation, from any tongue, we are one people through Jesus Christ, okay? Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, let me give you, lastly, an existential personal argument. Um, Again, I've kind of strewn, I've kind of peppered my talk so far with this, but this is what we were made for, this being united with the love of our souls, being truly known and knowing truly, and, be, and loving fully and being fully loved. This is what we were made for. You have pictures of a man and a wife. Um, you have pictures of things we say to cute kids and to our children sometimes, like, I just want to eat you up. You hear that sometimes. And we sort of betray that kind of existential desire, don't we, when we say something like that? Like, it's not enough. There's a beauty that I'm seeing right now that I literally want, I don't want to destroy you by literally eating you. That's disgusting. But what am I saying? Let's not, let's not exegete that too much, right? But what am I saying? What am I expressing? I'm expressing that I want all the beauty and I, that I see. I want that union. I want to be so close that you're closer than close. You're in me and I in you. And a man, again, a marriage between a man and a wife expresses that as close as we can get. Um, friendship. The closer, the better. The more intimate, the better in a healthy way to know and be fully known, to love and be fully loved. And this is what Paul is saying here. Christ has brought us into that. And friendships and marriage and singleness and all of life only makes sense when we first get that puzzle piece right. It makes everything else make sense. I'm gonna go back to Lewis. Of course I am, weight of glory. Toward the end of that sermon, actually, it was a sermon, he says this, this aspect that I'm speaking of, wanting to go in. He says, we do not merely want to see beauty, though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words, to be united with the beauty that we see, to pass into it, to receive it into ourselves, to bathe in it, to become part of it. That is why the poets tell us such lovely falsehoods. They talk as if the west wind could really sweep into a man's soul, but it can't. They tell us that, quote, beauty born of a murmuring sound will pass into a human face but it won't, or not yet. For if we take the imagery of scripture seriously, if we believe that God will one day give the morning star and cause us to put on the splendor of the sun, 
then we may surmise that both the ancient myths and the modern poetry, so false as history, may be very near the truth as prophecy. At present, we are on the outside of the world, the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness and purity of morning, but they do not make us fresh and pure. We cannot mingle with the splendors we see, but all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. And if I can just put an addendum to Lewis's sermon, which almost sounds heretical, uh, but if I could just add to that beautiful piece and say, someday we shall get in, yes, it is true, according to the New Testament, but actually, according to Paul here and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's a sense in which we already have. It's already begun. It has begun, but it's not yet been fulfilled, and it won't be until we see him face to face. But Christ in you is that taste of what you were made for. And it is that reality that ought to direct everything that we do in our bodies, which are highly valued. He took a body, he gave himself body and soul for you, and he has taken you to be his body, forever connected to you in intimate love as you look to him and trust in him. Um, Paul finishes this text with a beautiful, arresting assertion. He says, you are not your own, end of verse 19. You are not your own, what, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. So, he kind of leaves the bit of application for the end. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Everything you do, live in light of the fact that you are not your own, you've been bought, you are his. You've been united to him. Everything you do matters. Um, This is slave auction language, clearly. Verse 20 is slave auction language. And in the world of of Paul and the ancient Near East, it would have resonated with everyone who heard it, certainly with those in Corinth. Slaves were bought and sold in public fora all the time. And what this is saying is, is, is that Jesus Christ saw us. There's a whole book devoted to this called the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, if you wanna go read it. But he saw us having willfully given ourselves over to the things that we were not created for, trying to be our own gods, we sold ourselves into slavery and have been and have left ourselves destitute in need of a savior, but not even necessarily wanting one, on the auction block being ready to be given to the highest bidder. And Jesus comes along and he pushes us off and he gets in our place and he is bought and he is treated so shamefully and he stands in our place and he receives the wrath of the living God for all that we justly ought to have paid. He absorbed that. Second Corinthians, Paul wrote Second Corinthians as well, the next letter after this. Actually, it's the fourth letter. He wrote four, we only have two. But we only have the, we have the two we need, okay? Uh, he says in Second Corinthians five, he became sin. The way that sin affects you, the way that it makes you despair and creates this oily, dark, cold sense in you, it has real power and it truly changes the fabric of who you are. Christ took all of that for all of you that you will ever commit and anyone who would look to him and he, he incarnated that on the cross and then he cried out and God can't, he can't look on sin and so God, his father, removed himself for the first and last time in history from his son pouring his wrath out upon his son in payment for our sins, your sin and mine. And he took what we deserved. He pushed you off the block and said, live free because I'm about to go and stand in your place. And that's what Paul's saying. Christ bought you with, at what price? How much does he think of you? At the highest price. 
with his body, with his soul, with everything that he had. It's what it took for him to buy you back. That's how serious God is about sin. And that's how, that's how full your salvation is in Jesus and mine. There's this, um, there's this scene in The Iron Giant, which is maybe my number one favorite cartoon. Our kids have watched it and they love it too. Um, it's about a big, giant metal monster that's an alien that comes in and the American army's trying to destroy it and they think he's a threat. And the more they fire their missiles at him and try to nuke him, the more angry he gets, of course. He's trying to defend himself. And then there's this boy that, find, that knows the Iron Giant and has become friends with him, this little boy. He's like Seth's age. He's like eight. And he knows that the Iron Giant's a lovely, not person, robot. But man, he's trying to defend himself and then the boy gets in the way and then the boy's becoming uh, a target. And so he's trying to defend the boy and he's about to just explode everything. And then they launch a nuke. They launch a nuke from about 10 miles off the coast. They launch a nuclear weapon kind of by accident to destroy the, to destroy the Iron Giant. But actually it's just gonna come and destroy the city. It's gonna destroy civilization. And so the Iron Giant looks at the boy and, sorry, it's a cartoon about a robot, and I'm crying. <laughs> Man! Uh, I'm going to hear about this one later from my guy friends. All right. He basically looks at the boy, and he says, he says, you stay, or something like that, you know, in his robot voice. And uh, it's so poignant, and he pushes the boy back, who's trying to, you know, no, don't. And he pushes the boy back, and all these people that are trying to kill him and hurt him, he looks at him, and he, and he does his rocket boosters, and he flies up into the stratosphere, and he goes to meet the... Uh, the nuke that's coming down into the atmosphere. And, and, the, and he, uh, in the last scene before he explodes and takes the hit and saves those that were trying to kill him, right, is, is him smiling. Smiling. Smiling with the thought of the fact that he loves that boy and he's, what he's doing and sacrificing himself, he's saving. He's saving the one he loves. And the author of the Hebrews basically tells us this. He says, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. And what was that joy? Well, in large part, it was you. It was you. It was the thought of being in loving fellowship with you forever. Therefore, everything that you do matters as a Christian. It all matters. It's the opposite of it doesn't matter. It's the opposite. He has given himself gladly for you. And these words that Paul says between to, from Christ to us, and the cross itself is essentially a wedding vow. You I thee wed for better or worse, and nothing can part us, not even death, not even you, not even your worst, most unfaithful behavior, because I was faithful and I am faithful for both of us, for my whole body, my whole church, all of my people. Live therefore in me and grow faithful, become as I am, and become as you truly are. Okay, because you've been made pure, live pure. Live into who you are in Christ, okay? And last, the last and the sh by far the shortest point, glorify God in your body. Again, Paul isn't saying clean it up so that God can live in you. He's saying you, when you were at your worst, he came and died for you and has made you clean through his work and not yours, through his person, okay? And so live in light of who he's made you to be in the fact that you are already in Christ. Therefore, glorify God in your body, be holy. You know, I, I had boys um, in junior high when I used to be a junior high youth pastor, and they would always ask me, like, how far can we go, man? You know, like, what's the line? Just tell me, you know, and uh, with our girlfriends. And, and I would always say, man, that is the exact wrong question. 
That's the exact wrong question. Once you're even, the fact that you're even asking that question shows that you're in the wrong place. You know, you ought to be asking the question, how is, is what I'm doing holy? That's, that's the thing. And that's what Paul is basically saying in light of all that God has done for us, in light of the fact that he is the joy of man's desiring. Am I living in light of that, that he is in me um, and that he is what I need? Um, he's saying, Paul is saying food and sex are good toward the front of the passage. Food and sex are good, but there is something even, uh, something the body is made for beyond even those things, and that is God himself. That is God himself, okay? Um, and if you sort of pull out the, the implication of verse 13, verse, t- verse 13 says, God will destroy both one and the other, okay, food and sex, uh, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Okay, he's not saying the body's not made for sex. He's saying it's not made for sex in the wrong way. Sex God created to be between a man and a woman, pledged to one another in the covenant of marriage, okay? It's a good thing, but it's to be done like a fire. It's to be put in the fireplace. If it's, let to, if it's allowed to burn wherever it wants to, it'll create havoc. And Paul is saying, he's implying here that everything we do with our bodies done in the way that God calls us to as we are in Christ is pleasing to God and his worship. All that's not sin is sacred to God in Christ. So that, make, that means that all of our lives become worship. And Paul later explicitly says, says this in chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, what? Do all to the glory of God. He's expanding on the way he ends this passage. I think of um, one of my favorite movies, my favorite movie rather, Chariots of Fire, and the Scotsman, Eric um, Little. And he was training... Uh, for the 1924 Paris Olympics. And um, his sister is upset. He was born in China as a son of missionary parents, ministered there, was going back to China to be a missionary and indeed died there in, the, in a concentration camp, a Japanese concentration camp, ministering to the Chinese. Um, but he was training for the 1924 Olympics, super amazing athlete, rugby, track and field, popular, very, very famous in Scotland. Um, and he, uh, his sister, who's also a missionary worker with him in China, is there in Edinburgh with him. And she's so upset that he's spending all this time training. So he takes her to the crags, to Holyrood Park, that overlooks the city, sort of in the middle on the edge, middle edge of the city, where we, we lived about seven-minute walk from there, went there all the time. He takes Jenny up there on a walk, and he says, and he, and he kind of grabs her right there on the, on the spread with the city beneath him. And he says, he says, the most memorable quote of the, perhaps, of the movie he says, Jenny, Jenny, I believe God made me for a purpose. He made me for China, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And when Eric Little ran, you can look at pictures of him. Apparently, his sister said, Chariots of Fire movie, 1981, best picture. Doesn't even do it justice. He kicked his head back like this. And his competitors said he was just like an animal, just let out of the cage. He was worshiping God with his body in everything he did. All of life becomes worship because Christ is in us. It's not the, it's, we kind of live as if like, this is worship, uh, my quiet time is worship, what else? You know, no, everything. God brings us back into a life of worship. Freedom is ours in Christ because we've been united to him. He is in us and we in him. I need to finish there, um, and so I will. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for 
Your word, I thank you so much for your spirit. I thank you so much that you are our father, that you have done everything necessary for us to have life in you and to begin to taste even now before you return and we see you face to face and get to hug you, literally wrap our arms around you and be with you and you will reign as the God man forever. Before that even happens, Lord, we get to begin to taste entering into beauty itself and having beauty itself enter into us, Lord. I pray that union with Christ, that mystery that I didn't do a great job of unpacking today, but I pray that by your spirit and by your word, you would, you would just infuse our imaginations and our bodies and our lives with a bedrock understanding of union with you uh, and what that means for every single thing we do in life, that it all becomes pleasing to you because of the work of Christ. Everything we do matters. Our bodies matter. And one day we will get new ones. So we bless you. We love you. We come now to feed on your body and blood. And we do it with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.